We are beginning again in the book of Revelation, Philadelphia Church, Revelations 3.7. But remember, many false teachers like to exclude the book of James, Hebrews, and Revelation as being not scriptural, for it counters their belief in mental faith alone, once saved always, and saved doctrines. The message from Christ himself is the things that are. We are living in the age, it is the church age, the age of grace, and so these are the things that are. And so this portion of scripture is relevant. Jesus tells every church he knows their works and they must overcome to the end of their lives. Jesus makes it plain. Christians must start, continue, and finish with him in fruit-bearing, obedience, and spiritual works, which are proofs of faith and lordship. These apply to the church age, to the age of grace. Some people and theologians uh, like to exclude this book because Jesus talks about overcoming and works consistently, and that's contrary to their false doctrine of faith alone. These doctrines were just a far heresy to answer a heresy. There were Roman Catholic heresies of works of the church, and Luther answered them with a false heresy. And so that does us no good. So these are the things that are. Jesus is saying, this applies now. And he will get to the place when he finishes, when he will say now the things that are after this. So everything to the book of Revelations of the churches applies to the body of Christ. The bride applies to the period of grace or the church age. And so we need to take heed to what he's saying. And actually with this book is a dire warning that if you take anything from it, your name can be taken out of the book of life. And if you add anything to it, the plagues that are written in the book could be added to you. So this is a strong warning. And actually because it's a prophecy. Of course, this applies to all misuse of scripture, but this is a direct prophecy. Jesus received it from the Father. He gave it to the angel to give to John, and John has given it to us. This is not John's opinion. He is writing what he heard and saw and was told to do. He does not elaborate. Like the other epistles, the Apostle Paul and Peter, they have a right to give an opinion and their wisdom. But John does not do this. He does in his other epistles but he does not add his opinion, and therefore it must be taken more seriously and cannot be altered. The Apostle Paul and them, the church can alter methods and the way things are done. He does not alter truth itself, but Paul gives wisdom concerning marriage and not marriage and so forth, and he gives what he thinks is the best wisdom, and he says God's given him this but he does not put any bondage on it. He does not give it as a command. He simply says, if you live a certain way at a certain time, certain things are better, and some things are not better. But you do not find this in the prophecy of Revelation. This is strictly from the Lord, and it needs not too much elaboration when he's talking to the churches, plain to understand. 
later with the signs and visions and stuff, they're harder to understand and get the meanings of for many people. Even Paul's writings, the Apostle Peter said, are hard to understand, which the simple, he meant spiritual simple, stumble at to their own condemnation because they don't apply themselves. They don't let the word of God take root. They don't obey the truth they've gotten, so they don't get no more. See, that's the principle of the kingdom. He that is faithful and little will get more, is faithful and much. So we have to take the warnings that God gives us. In the Old Testament, it says, when you seek me with all your heart, you shall find me. In the New, it says, in Hebrews, he that diligently seeks the Lord, it says he will reward it. He goes after him, he will be rewarded, and things will reveal. What is the implication? If you are not serious with God and his word, he's not serious with you. He'll hide things. Jesus himself thanked the Father for hiding these things, these truths, from the wise and intellectual and revealing them to the everyday person. Paul said the gospel was to be preached to the poor, the everyday. He said, God have chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith. So much for the prosperity and faith doctrine, another heresy of covetousness that will lead many to hell. So the Lord said, you can be rich. And he commended one of the churches for being rich. They were rich spiritually, even though they didn't know where the next meal was coming from. And the church that was physically rich we will see, he considered lost and naked, blind and wretched, and have need of gold. So we see God's opinion is different than man's. As the proverb says, what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination to the Lord. The people that the world thinks is great, God does not. The, thing, the people that are hidden and are not known of the world and that are faithful to the Lord, the scripture says, but they're well known. So when ministers get popular, there's a danger there in a dark society. The scripture says, Jesus said, beware when men speak well of you, for so they did of the false prophets. So when you see these mega ministries and stuff, in most cases, you're seeing a false shepherd because when the world likes them and likes what they have to say, it's contrary to scripture. It's so much self-esteem and finding their own happiness and finding their own life. That's what these ministers do, and that's why they write so many books. It appeals to the old nature. The carnal, selfish nature cannot appeal to the spiritual man. Okay, in verse 7, it says in chapter 3, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who will shut and no one opens, has this to say. So he's talking here himself. The Lord is speaking. Who is he? Jesus is holy. It says he is true and holy and has power. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 26, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, 
undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Only one person is higher than the heavens, and that is the Godhead, that is the Lord, the Spirit, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So he's a high priest that is holy, harmless, undefiled. What does it mean? He's harmless as to wickedness, and his acts are not evil. He's undefiled. He's sinless as the perfect lamb and the offering. There's no sin in him. There is no original sin, and there is no willful sin in him. Those who are born after Adam, we have original sin. We have certain things, but at the same time, God sets the limits, and even those people could obey their conscience and the law and be saved. He did not require them to be perfect, and he provided for these flaws and imperfections. Jesus did not have them, and so they could exercise their will, and God expected them to. When he says, Thou shalt not murder, he meant that the normal human uh, that's not demon-possessed uh, has the will to say no to murder when he's tempted. And so we have to understand that. He does not judge them simply because they're born into sin. They're predisposed. They have a magnetic drawing. But they have a will, and they can resist this in the covenant that they're in. And if they don't, they are judged by God. And so now, Jesus he did not have this original sin, yet he was still tempted as the angels were, and one-third of them fell when they were tested, and he chose to exercise his will and remain in God's will. That was the great temptation in the 40 days in the wilderness. One of them, the devil said, if you're the son of God, make these stones into bread. Well, he was at the point of starvation. He had gone 40 days without eating. He didn't just have appetite. He was starving. And yet he knew he could exercise the power of the divine nature, but it would be against the Father's will. And so it was a temptation to him. And so the devil was telling him, if you're the Son of God, well, Jesus knew he was. So we find the three major temptations referring to his deity and the power that he had, and he would not exercise it against the Father's will. And it's interesting, we have two times that are very clear. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, before, right before the ministry at this temptation, when he passed all the major temptations, it said angels came and ministered him. He was still not able to use his divinity and be in obedience to the Father. He was a prophet of the Lord. He emptied himself of the use of divinity, and he had to trust God as any man did. He had to be filled with the Holy Spirit. If he used his divinity, he did not need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. But as a man, as a servant, a prophet, and a teacher, he was baptized with the Holy Spirit for ministry. So every miracle that Jesus did, he did by the influence of the Holy Spirit. He did not act and use his divinity. And at the end of his life and ministry in the garden, right hours before he was 
led into this crucifixion and so forth. It sweat as if blood, it says, or like blood. Well, he knew what was going to come upon him, what he had to bear, and he still held on. He did not use his divinity. He could not. And the scripture says angels came and ministered to him. See, because he was faithful as a human, God was able legally and otherwise to strengthen him that he could get to the cross. So in a sense, the devil was trying to kill him before the cross and during the cross. That's what he was after. But as long as he obeyed the Lord, the Lord could give him the strength that he could remain sinless so he could be the Lamb of God, the perfect offering. So he was separate from the sinner. He was in the world, but he was not sinful and wicked as the world. What is the truth? It says he was truth. He is the truth. He is the representative of what God is and what God's nature is and to what he wants mankind to know about him. He has the key of David. Okay, we see that keys are to open and shut doors. They speak of authority. So he fulfilled the scriptures, the prophets. David, King David, through the Psalms, was a prophet, and he fulfilled these prophecies. He fulfilled the prophecy given to Abraham and to the other prophets. All power and authority has been given to him. When he resurrected and ascended, the Godhead, we should say, was restored to him, the use of it. Remember the day or so before he prayed, now, Father, restore to me the glory which I had with you before the world was. What was that glory? He was the word of God. What was the word of God? The word was with God, and the scripture says, and the word was God. He was always with the Father. Everything that was created, John says, was created by him. What is it telling us? Then when he emptied himself of the use of the Godhead, he depended on the Father as a man, as a prophet, as a teacher. And he had to fulfill this to be the Lamb of God. Yet when he resurrected and ascended, these things were restored to him, and all authority and power is given to him. He is back in the position, and we'll find, or we won't, but later on in the book of Revelation, when he returns to be the judge and the king, it says a name is written on his thigh, and that name is the word of God. He is God. People need to understand this. They try to refer to his divinity. A lot of false Catholics and people that even believe who Jesus is, they say, well, he could never sin because he was God. That is foolishness. It's a mockery for God to put him in that position if he could not be tested. Yes, he could have, but he didn't. And prophecy, and through the Lord saw the future, that he did this and obeyed, but he was tempted, or the devil would not have played the game with him. See, the devil's not that stupid. And so the devil thought he had a chance. But once he died, what did he say? He said, it is finished. And then death could not hold him because he was a perfect human and had not sinned. And when he resurrected and ascended, all the glory of God is restored to him. 
So that is the uh, wonderful part of the story, that Jesus was a man and overcame as the Son of Man. He did not overcome as the Son of God. He overcame as the Son of Man. And even now, he acts as a high priest. And Hebrews says, the man, Jesus, is the mediator. He's acting in that office because of his humanity. So he is acting as the Son of God and the Son of Man at this point in history. So we see then that he was given all authority, keys. We only see this a few times. And when Jesus promised Peter, he said, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. Not to make him a pope, not to make him a leader, as the false church states. He opened doors. What did he open? He was the first to officially minister the gospel at Pentecost. The Spirit came on him, and he preached, and many got saved and turned to the Lord. And for several years, they only preached to the Jews. See, they did not have the full concept that they were preached to the Gentiles and the whole world. But he said they would understand. This was a hard saying. So after several years, the Lord sends him to Cornelius' house, and he was a Gentile, and he had 12 people with him and his family, and he first preached the gospel to the Gentiles. Officially, it was Peter. So Peter was given the keys. He opened the door to the Jews, and he opened the doors to the Gentile. Never once uh, do you see Peter being superior to James, and he wasn't even an apostle or the other. But when the group was together, he was usually the chief spokesman. But when decisions were made, the other elders and apostles agreed with him. They came to agreement. And so we find this unique that the James we're talking about was the half-brother of Jesus, who was not even saved until the Lord appeared to him during the 40-day period from his resurrection to his ascension. And James was called. And how do we know that? Because the Apostle Paul tells us. It's interesting. He was not of the 12, yet he ended up being the head, uh, we should say, uh, bishop, overseer of the Jerusalem church. And when Peter made major decisions, it was with agreement with the other elders. So he was not the Pope. This is a heresy. This is a heresy promoted by a false system. Okay. So we see that as he is restored now, he can deal with the body of Christ. The amazing thing that people forget is the Apostle Paul often speaks to us and he uses the terminology Christ in you. Well, Jesus was the Christ. But who is the Christ that indwells the believer? He is the divine word of God. He is the nature and the person of God. See, when he, before he died, what did he say to his disciples? He said, I am with you. But he said, I shall be in you. When he emptied himself of this union with the Father, we don't know how, what degree, but he could not use it and be obedient. He said, I am with you. He was a human. He could not be in them. He was separate. Jesus himself said, as the Father has life in himself, so has he given the Son. 
So while he was on earth, he was a man and he could not indwell them. But he said, but I shall be in you. He is in us by Christ. See what he's called. And so we often see this term used by the Apostle Paul, Christ in you, often. So he's not talking about the man Jesus. He's talking about the God, the Christ. He is the one who indwells us uh, when we are born again, when we walk in the spirit he's talking about. And so we see then that this is the one who opens the doors that no man shuts. And he can shut doors. It means he has the authority under certain conditions to do this. And so we say the last word of Christ, basically, in the book of Revelation says the spirit and the bride are saying, come. He's given an open invitation. People are not predestined as the Calvinistic heretic teaches. Their predestination, they take two or three scriptures out of context and they build a theology on it when there's a hundred scriptures that counter this and show you how to bring it into focus. What is predestined is the train or the ship of salvation is going to heaven. That's predestined. But whether the person is on the ship or train or gets off is up to them. He is saying the salvation, when God instituted it, man had nothing to do with it. The plan of salvation is by God. The acceptance or refusal of the plan, that's up to man. And so he's given an open invitation. Those who are elected have chosen. They are called and chosen because they respond to the call, and therefore they're chosen. Two-thirds of the angels did not fall during their testing period, and the scripture calls them the elect angels. Why? Were they elected before they were born, or excuse me, or created? No, it's they elected to stay with God and not rebel as the devil and one-third did. So we are the elected. That's why Peter says, prove your election. Live right. If you don't live right and follow the Lord, then your election's false. So that's the guarantee. James himself said, faith without works is dead. Prove your faith. Prove your faith if you're going to confess Jesus. And Jesus himself said, why call me Lord, Lord, if you do not do what I tell you to do? So these are heresies. Scriptures take it out of context. No one's predestined to hell. The father in the old covenant said, it's not his will that any perish, but that all come to the knowledge of the truth. So we need to understand this. The last verses of Revelation says, whosoever will may come. So he's given an invitation to everybody. And there's only a few people that the invitation doesn't apply. And this is after they have stubbornly resisted the Spirit or blasphemed the Holy Ghost, and God has finally cut them off, as he did at the time of Noah. Noah preached for 120 years. Sad to say, there were no converts. But when he went into the ark, the Scripture says God shut him in. God shut the door of grace 
He shut him in grace and he shut the world outside. It didn't matter if they believed then. It didn't matter if when the waters were rising, they were beaten on the door. Noah could not allow them to come in. It wasn't within his hand. The authority was God's and he shut the door. The same with the five foolish virgins. They once knew the Lord and yet he shuts the door on them. And when they come knocking, he says, I don't know you. He didn't say like he will to the masses of Christendom, I never knew you. To them, he says, I don't know you. See, they slept spiritually. That means they fell into wickedness. And that's what God is revealing to those in this probation period that people don't like to hear. Revelation speaks to the churches of overcoming this life. Never once does he say you have overcome for the future. John says one scripture, you're young and you have overcome. That meant in the present time. It didn't mean for always, as the heretic teaches. So the spirit and the bride, that's the church, have given the invitation. That's the general way the gospel is given. So it's open to all. Now the door can be shut for backsliders and ex-Christians that sleep as the foolish virgins did. But in general, like I say, at the first opening statement, God is opened to everyone. He's given grace even before the gospel of grace. He extends himself. He's merciful and gracious, and he revealed himself to Moses that way. He said, I am merciful and graceful to people. But if they despise this grace, if they fight against this grace, then he can shut the door. He shut the door to Pharaoh. He shut the door to King Saul. King Saul, it says, the spirit of Jehovah departed from him, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. God left him and sent an evil spirit to him. He could not repent. He could not be saved because God has shut the door. No man cometh to the Father, lest the Spirit of the Father draws him. That's part of the condition. God does his part, and man must do his part also. In these divine matters, there's always the divine side and the human side. It's never either or. Jesus is divine, and everyone in him will bear fruit. But Jesus, as the vine, cannot bear fruit without the branches. See, he's chosen to link himself. So the branch that refuses to yield to the vine is cut off. He's cut off from the life of Christ. Spiritually, he's dead. And so we see the combination. Christ, through the church, uh, he cannot have a church without branches. And the branches must yield to Christ, or they can refuse to yield. That is why so much of the scripture is appealing and is written to appeal to man's will and man's decisions. The Christian has a free will before he's saved and after he's saved. He can go back into that lifestyle, and Paul's warning people how they do this, through willful sin and for being deceived through the devil. So the door can be shut to those who resist grace. But initially, it's God's will that every human 
come to the Lord. Yet as we see through revelation and through prophecy, Jesus tells us that few there be that find it. And he tells us why. He said that men love darkness rather than light, and therefore they will not come to the light lest they be reproved. It doesn't say they cannot come. It says they will not come. See, under that dispensation, even before Christ, they had a will to exercise, and they chose not to come to the truth. But those who did come, God opened up the truth. But it was his will that everybody come. The same as this will at the last verses of tribulation. Whosoever will, will come. But the majority of adult mankind will end up in the lake of fire because they chose not to come to God and to follow him. The responsibility is laid on them. It is not laid on predestination and election and being chosen. That's false. It's false doctrine, which is false teaching. So we're seeing that God is gracious under every covenant and he holds man responsible under various, we can call them dispensations or periods. Their will has to be exercised or they can refuse to obey him. God does not alter that initially with man. Only way it can be altered is by a person becoming demonized under control of a demon because they willfully yield it, and then the demon takes more power from the person than the person originally meant to give him. That's possible. And see, that's the danger. Actually, in the original, the word possessed is not used. It simply says, has the demon. And we see this illustrated through King Saul. One minute, he's offering David to come to me, my beloved son, and the next minute, he's trying to kill him. See, he's double-minded. He's unstable. His emotions at times, all of a sudden he wills to do something, but then that demon takes control because God had rejected him and was not given him grace. He was not the Lord's anointed anymore. He was once the Lord's anointed. And even David would not kill him when he had an opportunity because he was the physical king, and he was still anointed as a physical king, but the spiritual anointing had departed from him, and even David. And the same applies to the devil. The Bible says that Michael disputed with the devil over the body of Moses to bury it. Somehow, uh, the devil wanted to get a hold of this, maybe to make an idol out of it for the people to be deceived. But it said when Michael disputed with him, he simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Remember that Lucifer was higher and standing when he was the angel, the covering cherub. So even Michael showed a personal respect for him and drew the name of Jehovah to rebuke him. He didn't mock him. He didn't argue with him. He recognized he once had a standing. So we see this, that David used the same respect and would not kill Saul when he had an opportunity, even though the Lord had rejected him spiritually and cut him off. Okay, verse 8, he says, I know your works, deeds, your actions. That's what it means. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. 
because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Listen to this. He knows their works. And what is their works? They were faithful under temptation. They were faithful under trial. Therefore, he gives them more grace. He gives them an open door. And he says, not be shut because you're faithful to me. I'm going to extend grace to you. Okay. He's not going to do that to many people who've refused to be grounded in the word. He said, but you have a little power. You've stayed with me. You've resisted the devil. You've overcome at this point. And you have kept my word. You stayed with the word of God. And you've not denied me. Remember, during the emperor worship, they were often the Christian, which wasn't that many. Some people speculate there were only 50,000 or so from the world living at that time. (laughs) Some people believe there wasn't much more. And the leaders were sometimes called before the authorities and given opportunity to worship the emperor, to acknowledge him. And they would not. They only acknowledged God and his Christ as being God. And some of them were put to death or in prison if they did not recant. Some that did recant, they were accepted back into the Roman Empire. And so this is what Jesus is talking about. You have not denied me. You still hold to me as being your true Lord and God and have refused to recognize anyone else as your God. Remember the Romans, they were big on letting people worship who they wanted to. As long as they obeyed them and paid the taxes, they didn't care. And they asked these religions, when they overcame their countries, they were commanded to pray for the emperor. And this was the point where the Christians could not do it. See, because the emperor was recognized and deified by the Roman law as being a god. And that was the issue, and they did not deny his name. But the Christians were not that well known in the whole Roman Empire for even them to pay attention to them. So they were so small, by this time they were an ex-Jewish sect. Uh, Up through 20, 30 years, they were considered a Jewish sect part of Judaism. But finally, they were rejected by the Romans and the Jews, and they were their own group, you should say. But they weren't large enough and powerful enough, and so often some of the emperors ignored him. They didn't even know who they were, didn't even pay attention to him. But one of the emperors decided to make an issue of it because the devil was inspiring him to do so. Okay, and so we see this You did not deny me, the true God, Jesus Christ, and the Father, to the Roman authorities. And because you refuse to worship them, I'm giving you an open door. Now, remember, 8% or so of the 60 million people or more, 8% of them, and this is a historical fact, were Jews throughout the empire. And they often danced around this subject. See, they believed personally there was only one God, but often they compromised. And therefore, only a few times was there persecution against them. 
but they sort of danced around this subject where the Christian did not. The Christian suffered for his belief. The Jews did not. They compromised a lot, and we see why God did what he did to the Jewish nation and to the Jewish people. Okay, verse 9, So I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but they lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Interesting. Why the synagogue of Satan? Why? Because most Jews rejected the Christ that were given the opportunity, and he is now dealing with the church, which is mainly made up of Gentiles at this time. They, the Jews, since rejecting Christ, are not spiritual Jews, which the true Christians are. See, this is the interesting point. We look at the Apostle Paul speaking in Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29. Listen carefully to those who want to mingle and fellowship with Jews on a spiritual basis. There is no such thing. For he is not a Jew who is outward. Okay, the person that is in Judaism and has been circumcised and is in that religion, nor is that circumcision outward in the flesh. So he's saying a true Jew doesn't matter if he's circumcised or not. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is from men, not from God. So he's clearly telling you the Jew is not a Jew as far as God is concerned. He's been rejected. His religion is obsolete. It's been replaced because of their unfaithfulness and their rebellion. And the only ones that are true Jews are the church. And people like Paul and Peter that came to the Lord, they are a true Jew still. They moved over from the old to new covenant. So they are the true Jews. But today, any Jew that does not come through Jesus Christ, he is just as lost as any Gentile is. He has no special standing, and it's a heresy for churches to treat them as if they are special. They are not. They're under God's curse and judgment until the coming of the Antichrist, and then part of the nation will be saved. Why will they be saved? Because they're lost unless they accept the Lord Jesus. Let's take a break here.